doctor will be with you in a moment. On today's program, just what is in your medical record? Ever taken a peek? Difficult. Elaine, you shouldn't be reading that. Now tell me about this uh, rash of yours. Um, well, it's, it's, you know, I noticed that someone wrote in my chart that I was difficult in January of 92. And I have to tell you, I remember that appointment exactly. You see, this nurse had asked me to put a gown on, but it was a mole on my shoulder. And actually, I'd specifically worn a tank top so that I wouldn't have to put a gown on. You know, they're made of paper. And... Well, that was a long time ago. How about if I just uh, erase it? <laughs> now, about that rash. But it was in pen. <laughs> you fake erase. All right, Miss Venice. This doesn't look too serious. You should be fine. What are you writing? Doctor? <laughs> From the Providence Institute for Human Caring, this is the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. A new federal regulation is about to kick in that would make Elaine snooping a thing of the past. The new rule requires that patients be offered access to all the information in their electronic medical record free of charge, including any notes that your clinician writes. By the end of next year, all of your health record will be available on apps that can be accessed on a smartphone. This is the culmination of a movement for transparency that's been underway for years. But it's not 100% clear just how much the information in a medical record will be understood by the average patient. We'll talk about access to information and understanding what you read as the 21st Century Cures Act and medical literacy are our topics on the Hear Me Now podcast. Stay with us. Today's show is a little like a spider web. It's possible to get from point A to point B to point C, but it probably won't be in a straight line. But don't be too worried about that. Just stay with me. All of these ideas today are webbed together and they're related. Just don't look for a straight line. The 21st Century Cures Act will put more information into the hands of interested patients. So you have the idea of transparency and patient access. Put a pin in that. Depending on how your doctor writes about your care, there's a good chance that you may not understand everything that's written in the record. So there are ideas of medical literacy and communication. Put a pin in that. And finally, patients have the ultimate responsibility to participate in decisions about their own care. And to do that meaningfully, we have to understand our condition. We have to understand the options that are available to us, and we have to understand the risks and the benefits of various treatment decisions. So there's an idea of autonomy. Put a pin in that. 
Making access to your medical records easier isn't just about paperwork and data transfer. It's about a really complex relationship between patients and their loved ones and the patient's healthcare team. The medical record can become a tool for clear communication, a way to be sure everyone's on the same page, singing from the same hymnal. Or it could complicate already complicated relationships and really foul things up. So, some practical stuff as we begin. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about your medical record in this context? The information that's included in the 21st Century Cures Act includes reports on your health history and the findings from any physical exam that's done during a visit, notes on any procedures that are undertaken, progress reports on your ongoing issues, descriptions of x-rays and other imaging studies, lab results, pathology reports, copies of discharge summaries that are sent home with you, and finally, notes to your primary doc from any specialist who's participating in your care. By April 5th, 2021, all of that information has to be provided free of charge and without delay or blocking. It might be provided on paper to begin with, but it has to make its way to a smartphone app by October of 2022, next year. Nathan Kotkamp is a partner at the Waller Law Firm's healthcare industry team, where he provides counsel on compliance with federal and state healthcare regulations and day-to-day operational issues. Nathan's experience includes work with hospitals and health systems, academic medical centers, behavioral healthcare service providers, and long-term care providers. Nathan Kotkamp joins us from his home in Richmond, Virginia. Hi, Nathan. Welcome back. Hi, thank you so much. In April, the rule changes and people have easier access to seeing their medical record. Not all of it, but quite a bit of it. What should people expect? Well, I think it's an interesting question about um, easier access. Um, It's hard for me to envision how this is really going to change compared to what is already in place under HIPAA and many state laws with respect to access to records, that the right to access to records has been around for quite some time. Um, I think the 21st Century Cures Act is going to facilitate that, but it's it's hard to know what it's going to look like. If there's any indicator right now, uh, it's that it's still going to be a challenge for patients to get their records. I don't know if... Uh, you're aware, but the um, the Office for Civil Rights of U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has made a really, really big push in the last 18 months for the right to access uh, health records. And they have had 14 settlements in the course of about 15 months um, with respect to providers failing to provide access to records. So that's not based on a new law at all. It's based on HIPAA, and so providers are still getting it wrong. So it'll be interesting to see how all this rolls out. So from my experience as a patient, over the last couple of years, almost all of my providers have opened up some sort of uh, electronic portal that allows me to go in and look at lab results and things like that. But it doesn't include things like progress notes or 
communication between specialists and my primary care physician. So wouldn't that be a change? Yes, that's been available to me, but I'd have to go in, request it, fill out paperwork. The fact that I could log on and see that stuff would be much more convenient. I certainly agree. Um, I think a big question is how much of that is actually going to be uh, recorded electronically as opposed to just happens um, by conversation or phone call, things like that. So that piece of it is, is I think, a, a practical one, um, although you would think that in this day and age, um, the majority of communication is happening via email, um, but it also happens in text messages. And so that's another place that um, the, the reality of medical records and the way in which uh, healthcare providers communicate with each other and with patients being text messaged uh, increasingly um, that stuff often doesn't get recorded in health records. So that's uh, another piece of the puzzle that needs to be factored in. Joining us now, Greg Von de Keefe. He's the medical director of the Palliative Practice Group for the Providence Institute for Human Caring. And he practices as a palliative care physician and clinical ethics consultant at Providence St. Peter Hospital in Olympia, Washington. Dr. Van de Keefe, as a provider, what's your take on your patients having easier access to their medical records? Well, my sense of things is that things aren't necessarily all that different since patients already have the right to access to all of their medical information. It's mainly going to be a matter of timing and effective communication because the immediacy with which the Cures Act allows patients access to their information means that they could literally have test results that they have reviewed themselves before their providers had a chance to review it. And I think for many providers, it's also creating a sense that they need to be more mindful of how they document. But again, patients have already had the right to access those records. Uh, Providers just haven't been as thoughtful about um, framing the notes so that a patient would be reading them in the future. Nathan, months ago, when we first talked about doing this episode, I think you mentioned something about the value of providers being aware that they have a different audience now, and that you thought that that might humanize the note-taking and the language that's used. Do you, do you still believe that? Um, yes, it's probably more of a hope than a belief, but um, I do think that the more that medical records become something that is recognized as being viewed by third parties as opposed to the language within a subculture, a professional subculture, Mm -hmm. uh, I think it will change the way in which the documentation appears. And with any luck, it'll become more humane. Uh, It will become more patient-centered. And you know, I think the exercise of writing clinical notes for a patient or family member audience, in addition to just your professional peer audience, is going to change the way in which the writing is done. It's going to change the way in which it's interpreted, and it may lead to better trust in the system. It's, it's hard to trust your clinicians when you get their notes and they make no sense to you as a layperson, even an intelligent layperson. 
which brings up the issue of medical literacy, which I hope we'll touch on in a little bit. Greg, the issue of language, there's a shorthand that clinicians use that can appear abrupt to outsiders. I'm thinking of using terms like, you know, the patient denies X, Y, and Z. Denies is a is a kind of a loaded word in general usage, but not in a medical record. You know, a couple different drugs are tried and they haven't worked. It's never put that way. It says that the patient failed this drug, that drug, and another drug, rather than the drug failing the patient. I'm curious about the language that clinicians use in medical records at the moment. I think if clinicians are more mindful of the audience that will be reading their notes, it can impact the language they use. What I mean by that is historically the notes was written intended for either our future selves so that we can recall what we did at a previous encounter or for our colleagues in case somebody's covering for us on call or sending a note to another specialist. Increasingly, the audience has become insurers and medical liability uh, considerations. But thinking about the audience as being patients, I think, does modify it. I go back to an example when I was a medical student. One of my classmates uh, used shorthand for the patient is short of breath, and she wrote patient is SOB. <laughs> the patient saw that chart note later and was furious because he read it differently than she intended it. And I think, too, uh, we have automatic things in some of our notes that will list things like life expectancy that we may or may not have discussed in uh, detail with the patient and their family. And so we need to be more mindful as we document these things. Who's going to be reading this and how is the language going to impact them? And you, you hit on an important point, Sean. We use things like the patient refused as opposed to the patient chose not to. You know, refused sounds fairly strong, much like denies sounds fairly strong. And so being mindful of how these, how these words are being perceived by the people reading them, I think is going to modify how we, how we document our clinical encounters. I had a friend, physician, tell me the other day that, that she suspected an autoimmune disease in a, based on a patient's presentation. And that got abbreviated as AID. Oh, my. Which... Uh, the patient read and spent another month worrying that that she had AIDS uh, because she had read it in the record. So that the use of abbreviations and language, you really would hope that people are going to be really careful about that. Or even nomenclature, uh, there's a variant of Crohn's disease where there's inflammation near the end of the ileum, and it's referred to as terminal ileitis. Well, when a patient reads terminal, what are they going to think? We're talking about the new rules going into effect April 5th that will give patients easier access to their medical records. My guests are Greg Mandekeef, a palliative care physician in Olympia, Washington, and Nathan Kotkamp, a healthcare attorney in Richmond, Virginia. Still to come, we'll talk about the importance of understanding what things mean in your medical record and being able to participate meaningfully in decisions about your own care. We'll be joined by Maura Wozniak from North Carolina, who's lived with cystic fibrosis her whole life. Um, I want to pivot for a moment and talk about medical literacy. Even if clinicians are more mindful about the language that they're using and the audience who might be reading their notes, 
you're still left with the fact that the clinician is expert and the patient is probably not. I'm wondering about that gap in education and medical literacy. Will the easier access to the medical record create an impetus among clinical providers to help their patients understand what they're reading? Like, is there an educational component that should accompany this rule change? I think at some level, providing additional information, and particularly with um, the technology we have available today, for instance, in my field, we have a whole series of um, advanced care planning videos available called ACP Decisions. And so we can literally give people a um, web address to look at informational videos about the material we're discussing. And I, I think that having some increased responsibility there to help people understand it. One other thing I haven't heard talked about a lot yet with the Cures Act is uh, how that impacts equity. Because who is going to benefit the most from this? It's going to be mainly people who are educated, who have the means to have technological access to their records, uh, who already have a sense of agency or self-activation. And so how are we going to make sure that the people who are more marginalized are also able to benefit? And I, I haven't heard a lot of discussion around that aspect of things yet. I'd say that there's sort of a corollary to that as well, that there's a patient empowerment aspect to all this. There's the element of being able to have access, then there's the element of being able to understand, and then there's the element of having um, the ability to reach out to your provider and get meaningful answers to those things you don't understand. And I think that there's a lot of times a reluctance by patients to reach out to their providers because they don't want to look ignorant or they don't have the, the ability to do so. Let's say that you're, um, you work in some office space where you don't have access to a private phone during the hours of your physician. So how are you going to make that request or, or have that dialogue because trying to do it over email or text message or whatever it is uh, or through the portal is really uh, clunky. So you, you sort of have to rely on patients speaking up when they don't understand things, but then you have to consider what is the true availability of communication to answer those questions. And I guess another element too is depending on how long it, it ends up taking physicians, there's also the, the question of compensation. You know, should they be separately compensated for spending uh, considerable additional time translating um, medical speak to patients? Yeah, you know, I'm reminded, Sean, of um, the the book Doctor's Stories, which many people say should have been called Patient Stories by Catherine Montgomery Hunter, where she talks about patients come to us and they present us a story in their language. We translate it into medical jargon because of how we process the information, go through the diagnostic process, put together a therapeutic plan, etc., communicate it internally among other healthcare professionals. But where we frequently fail is to then ultimately reinterpret it back into the language of the patient and return the story to them in a way that they can utilize it. That interpreting process is something that takes time and it takes training. And uh, medical schools are better than they used to be at training physicians in communication, but we still have a long ways to go. I haven't thought a lot about the compensation piece that Nathan referenced, but if we think about 
um, sort of a global encounter of care, whether it be documentation or communication, that, that's all a part of the encounter. And so the encounter needs to be set up in a way that the compensation covers all aspects of it, not just the time spent face to face. I think the issue of equity is such an important one. And I'm glad you brought it up, Nathan. I especially like it because it reveals this cascading sense of scope. And you, you laid that out perfectly. And one of the aspects of that that really intrigues me is that, you know, for the last, I don't know, what, 40, 50 years, we've seen a shift away from paternalism towards a shared decision-making model. I'm supposed to have a, a, a key role in decision-making. And how can I have that role if I'm ignorant of the facts and of the clinical reality? So it, it keeps pointing back to this notion of medical literacy that a person, especially a person with a chronic condition, has to become a, as well-educated about their condition as possible. And I think that's going to be easy for some people, and it's not going to be easy for other people. And that raises real issues of equity. Uh, are only the well-educated people going to be able to participate fully in their care? And everyone else reverts back to a paternalism that maybe never went away. Yeah, I think it's perhaps a pendulum situation a little bit. Paternalism, when it was super dominant, wasn't good for lots of different reasons. I think a patient-centered model is very good for lots of things, but if it swings to the side of being so patient-dominant that the uh, clinician's views and education are put aside because the patient wants what the patient wants, that's a problem too. So I think where we really need to end up is a collaborative sort of thing, and the only way you can end up with a collaborative relationship is if you understand each other. And there, I think there's plenty of examples in human interaction where you're dealing with higher levels of education or experience and much lower, and people figure out how to communicate, and they do so generally effectively. I mean, think about elementary school. <laughs> if you're dealing with a second grader, you know, you have to translate into second grader language, but for the most part, that communication occurs. Now, granted, it's not the same as making decisions about you know, heart disease or something like that. But I don't think it's a situation where the ability to translate those patient stories, for example, into doctor speak and then translate them back. Um, I think we have that ability. We just haven't focused mm -hmm. on the translate back part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really appreciate what Nathan said about the need for it to be a collaborative process. The older model of paternalism, it was all the physician directing things and the patient passively following. But the pendulum swung so far the other way that it became a matter of the physician information dumping to the patient and then stepping back and leaving it completely upon the patient to make decisions when they often didn't feel that they had the expertise to know exactly how to go. My approach has been for many years to elicit from the patient what their priorities are, their goals, their hopes, and then to offer, you know, to ask them if they would like me to provide a recommended course of treatment, as opposed to just saying, what would you like to do to say, here are your range of options. Here's what I recommend, but ultimately you have the final say in the matter. Do either of you have reason to hope that this rule change will be be an impetus for culture change where people become more collaborative? 
I hear many clinicians who say it's not going to change my practice much, but there are others who really feel that it is going to change their practice. So as health systems, how do we step up to support our providers to, to provide the best documentation that will best meet the needs of the patients and families they're caring for? I think one of the things that's fascinating about it is the potential to lead to real changes in our use of information outside of the medical infrastructure, if you will. So I think when you look at the history of of electronic medical records, that was one of the, the major promises of it all was to streamline things and to enable us to data mine and, and we were going to just do these amazing things with, with data. And it, it, that hasn't really materialized, or at least not, not that I've been able to observe. But you wonder if some enterprising collection of, of people and coders and things like that will turn to the availability of health information that's now available to patients and have those patients themselves voluntarily uploaded into systems that then start processing it through AI and other things like that, because we have the capacity to do that. And if the medical industry is not going to do it, then those technology folks are going to do it. So I have this vision of, of will this empower patients in a way that is sort of parallel to what's going on in the medical industry, and then it will sort of redound because you'll have all this data and we'll see advances in in AI and lots of questioning about why things are done here, there, and everywhere. And, you know, why is, what's, what's the clinical approach in, in France as opposed to Ecuador on, you name it. And we'll have the ability to do that. You know, we can do that within, I gave an international example, but within the states, or, you know, why do we approach something in, in Florida, but differently in Oregon and we can now have the capacity to, to more easily do that and look at it assuming that patients are willing to upload their information to a third party. That's interesting. You could also see the software linking people together who share something in common that they might benefit from conversation among themselves. Oh, yeah. And I'm seeing some of that occur within the open notes movement. Uh, for instance, there's a, a cadre of individuals who have um, or who are living chronically with brain tumors that have been very active in leading the open notes movement and sharing information accordingly and and um, working with their clinicians as well. Greg, remind us what open notes means. Open Notes, um, if you were to Google Open Notes, there's a particular organization that is uh, an advocacy group on behalf of patients having immediate access to their uh, clinical records. And so uh, as, as we're moving into the 21st Century Cures Act and, and that becoming uh, mandated by statute, um, this, this organization is particularly seeing their, their goals being achieved. I believe that their phrase is nothing about me without me. Well, I'm normally a pretty hopeful guy, and I suppose I'll officially say that I'm hopeful about this. I guess I worry that no text can serve as many masters as we're asking the health record to serve. That if it's supposed to be a communication tool with patients and with your future self as a clinician, and with the person who may have to cover for you, and with payers, and with insurance companies, and with a jury who eventually 
is going to be looking at this if this ever ends up in a courtroom. Those are a lot of audiences to serve with one document. To that, I would say one of the problems with this whole scenario is akin to what we say in the law a lot of times, which is bad facts make bad law. I fear that a lot of patients aren't going to take advantage of it at all. So it's going to be this huge infrastructure for the benefit of patients that is is left as an untapped resource. And that what's going to happen is it's the bad cases, the ones where something went awry, the ones where there's a malpractice issue. Those are going to be the ones where the access is critically important. And unfortunately, those are going to make for great stories. You know, when we, we're able to be around a water cooler again, um, those are the types of things that are going to get shared. And those are going to skew the way in which providers approach their medical records. Because so I think right now, by my estimation, I don't think that clinicians are really concerned about the language that they're using in their medical records, notwithstanding the fact that under HIPAA, patients have had a right to their records for quite some time. So I don't know if, if the easier access will in fact change the mindset. It's certainly possible, but I think it's going to be more about the community and the exposure and the rumors. That's probably going to drive changes in behavior more than anything at all. Yeah, you know, one other thought as Nathan was speaking that came to mind is uh, the amount of material that auto-populates into our notes that many clinicians don't spend a lot of time reflecting upon. Uh, we think about the narrative that we enter into our notes in real time, but um, most electronic records pull quite a bit of material, whether it be radiology reports, lab reports, or perhaps um, earlier material from the hospitalization or a, a previous clinical encounter. And so we need to really reflect on who's going to be reading that. And as you said, Sean, with so many different audiences, how do we shape the narrative uh, to best meet the needs of all of them? I think it's doable, but it is going to require um, a thoughtful approach. And how much of that can we offload out of the clinical note? For instance, material for payers, insurance companies and the like, how much of that could actually be out of sight for, for people reading the chart note itself? And so it's, it's gonna be a work in progress. Well, I think it actually also raises the question about education too, is charting, whether it's already a, a part of medical school, but will this evolve as a more core content piece of medical education? I think that that piece of it is pretty significant as well. That's a very good point, Nathan, in that when the uh, electronic record came about, it was almost assumed that we would just continue documenting without a lot of training on you're using a very different format compared to dictating a note that's going to be typed out and put into a paper record. And in the early days of the medical record, what they found is clinicians who were good communicators, the electronic record actually gave them additional tools and they had the potential to communicate more effectively. Clinicians who were not very good communicators, it actually became a distraction and they were so focused on the electronic record that their communication with their patient was actually worse than it had been previously. Hmm. So some fundamental level of training on how to use this tool, this format, this platform, uh, strikes me as being an important part of our, our education. Do you have any recommendation for patients? 
if they're interested in participating in their care, how to consume this record that's going to become more easily available to them and how they might use it in fostering that collaborative relationship with their providers. Well, Nathan spoke earlier about empowering patients, and I think the more we can do to give patients you know, free reign to communicate with us, to receive that communication as welcome information, and to be able to respond in a manner that, that meets their needs. I think of when I was on um, medical school faculty, and I had quite a few um, university faculty as patients, I would often get emails in advance with a journal article attached that would say something like, Greg, I, I think this pertains to my situation. I wonder if you'd review it and we could talk about it at my next appointment. Uh, it took extra time, but it was well worthwhile in terms of what it meant for the nature of our collaboration. Um, now, again, that the, the whole equity question comes up. This is a fairly privileged group who could communicate in that manner. But the more we can promote the normalization of, of patients being active participants to have agency in their health care, uh, the more I could see the open notes thing really fostering a, um, a collaborative relationship between clinicians and patients. And I would say that I think a, a key part of this is uh, self-advocacy. I think patients need to recognize there is a very real phenomenon of white coat blindness and deafness even I experience it. I'm an attorney. I've got a master's degree. And oftentimes, I don't remember to ask the questions that I should when I go to the doctor. It's, it's just sort of part of the, the process. Um, and we see that play out with uh, prescription adherence and all sorts of other things where uh, right there in the, in the clinical interaction, you get a patient who's essentially saying, okay, sure. Um, but they really don't understand it. And they're not, uh, they don't want to look stupid or they just are so overwhelmed by the amount of information that it seems to be processed at the moment. So it may also be that we need to think outside of just the physicians themselves. I mean, do we need to set up a structure with medical information collaborators or social workers Mm -hmm. or whatever term you'd want that after the physician encounter, after the patients got access to the record, they reach out to be sure that the patient actually understands, and those could be the translators. You know, so I think it doesn't have to just be physician to patient. There are other options, but I think for patients to recognize that they do have a role to play in this, it's not just hey, the physicians have to do better about communicating with me. We as patients need to demand from physicians that they do make things make sense, and if they don't, make sure that we get our answers. That's a great point, Nathan. I was going to ask earlier in the conversation, it seemed like an unfair question to ask a lawyer and a doctor, but I always thought that nurses had as one of their constituent values that they were about patient education. And I know that every nurse is overworked, but it seems like this falls into the category of educating patients. And I I don't know what the solution is. I like the idea of there being some sort of advocate for the patient to make sure that they're understanding what's going on. Well, certainly um, the ethos of patient advocacy is deeply embedded in, in nursing. 
but I've seen some practices that actually use patient educators that come from different backgrounds, not necessarily nursing. And um, one practice I saw, they, they would have the patient educator be in the room with the patient and the clinician. And then after the clinician w- moved on to see the next patient, they would say, so tell me what you heard there. And they would take some time to make sure that the information was clear. Um, that was a bit of an unusual practice, but how cool would it be if that mindset of having that structured, systematic approach to patient information education and, and eliciting patients' values uh, was, was built into the care we provided? Yeah, and I would also say that there's an element of that that has to do just with the, the concept of case management and following up. I think all the studies about drug adherence or prescription adherence, for example, imagine how different that would be if a week later you had, it doesn't have to be a nurse, it could be some sort of tech or it's anybody who circles back and says, hey, uh, you know, you got your prescription for X, Y, and Z, how's it going? Can you confirm for me how you're taking it every day? What? Did, but we don't have a system that makes that happen. It's like you have this physician interaction and boom, you're done until the next issue happens. But then again, we're really poor at preventive care as a, as a general rule. So I guess it's all sort of wrapped up into that. I don't want to put too many eggs in the AI basket, but I will say that the automated responses that I get either from my insurance company or from medical practices always seem just slightly out of sync with the reality of my visit. So that when I read them, I don't really pay attention to what they're saying. It's like, oh, this is an, this is spam from my insurance company. Whereas if they were a little bit smarter about referencing the last visit and the encounter and the chief complaint, then I might pay attention to what that AI-generated response and follow-up was saying to me. But it, it has to be useful information. It can't be spam. Agreed. I did come across a primary care practice that, for instance, with diabetes and hypertension, they were seeing the patients in person less frequently and having uh, interval follow-ups by telephone, and they found that the outcomes were actually better. And interestingly, they actually felt the relationships were stronger because of the more frequent contact. And as Nathan said, it wasn't necessarily even a nurse or a provider who was making the telephone contact, but somebody was checking in, following up on medication use, uh, following up on diet, uh, physical activity, and they had some remote monitoring so they could get uh, blood pressures and blood sugar levels and things of that sort. And so I think as we see more population health-oriented approaches, We'll see more of that in the future, but right now it's it's a very it's widely variable how those sorts of things are utilized. Gentlemen, I'm really grateful for the time that you've spent with us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure. Greg Vandekeef is the medical director of the Palliative Practice Group at the Providence Institute for Human Caring. And he practices as a palliative care physician and clinical ethics consultant at Providence St. Peter Hospital in Olympia, Washington. Nathan Kotkamp is a partner on the Waller Law Firm's healthcare industry team, where he provides counsel on compliance with federal and state healthcare regulations and day-to-day operational issues for hospitals, health systems, and academic medical centers. He spoke with us from Richmond, Virginia.
Mara Wozniak is 42 years old and has lived with cystic fibrosis her entire life. She's an example of someone with a chronic condition who's deeply involved in her own care. So I would say, one, it's imperative that you understand your medical conditions so that you are able to speak with your doctors and really be a part of the process of knowing what, what medications you're going to take and what treatments you're going you're gonna to have access to. You know, oftentimes <clears throat> there are studies that, that are done that the doctors, you know, potentially would want to put you in, which I've done numerous studies. And you need to know all of the details in order for you to really advocate for yourself. I think for someone like me, who was born with cystic fibrosis and who's lived with it for 42 years, coming to know about the disease was, was, was organic, I would say. You know, we, ha- we had to, to kind of take ownership of that as we got older. You got a better understanding of how the disease progressed and what you needed to do to keep yourself healthy. Could you tell me, like, uh, in practical terms, what the sources of your information are? So primarily, I'm getting all the information from my doctors. Um, I'm lucky enough to live in an area where we have great resources and centers, Mm -hmm. Um, not only cystic fibrosis, pediatric and adult clinics, but also uh, transplant clinics. And um, I rely heavily on the medical professionals. I mean, this is their job. This is what they do day in and day out. Um, you know, so I, I, I rely on their, their guidance, real, really. I'm talking to Maura Wozniak, who's been living with cystic fibrosis her whole life. She's had two lung transplants over the years and is living now in North Carolina, where her advocacy has brought about a change in policy. People with serious health conditions in North Carolina were bumped down the COVID vaccine ladder from tier one to tier two and then to tier four. And Mora had a hand in getting the governor to reverse his position and move people with pre-existing conditions back up the list again. Tell me about what you're feeling with the success of the advocacy work. I think it was it was a huge win. It was a huge win for people um, with that are high risk, and also for their families. You know, we worked really hard in terms of, of a media push, and we did a petition that got over two thousand signatures. And it turns out that that the governor and other lawmakers and the Department of Health and Human Services they heard us, and. The other good news, too, is there, there's more vaccines coming to our state, um, especially with Johnson & Johnson just announcing that they're distributing some. It's a win, I would say. Maura Wozniak speaking with us from Charlotte, North Carolina. Earlier, we heard from palliative physician Greg Vandekieft in Olympia, Washington, and attorney Nathan Kotkamp, who's on the line with us again from Richmond, Virginia. Welcome back, Nathan. Hi, thank you so much. So I want to ask you about National Healthcare Decisions Day, which is coming up April 16th, right? That's correct. Yeah, it's been that date since uh, 2008, actually 2006 in Virginia, uh, inspired by um, Ben Franklin's adage that nothing in life is certain but death and taxes. So we go the day after tax day. 
<laughs> Very clever. Um, so tell us about the purpose of National Healthcare Decisions Day. Uh, quite simply, the purpose is to educate the public and uh, professionals as well about the importance of advanced care planning. Uh, it was all inspired really by my work on several ethics committees and seeing the cases really just be this very, very repeated problem of not having uh, instructions about what a patient would want at the end of their life, particularly um, if they didn't have any uh, family or in other cir circumstances when they had a big and diverse family that uh, wasn't necessarily in agreement. So a simple cure to that is an advanced directive. I'm going to take a wild guess that you're heartened by the fact that more people have completed advanced directives in the years since you founded uh, the day. And I'm also going to guess that you still think it's not enough. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, I am very heartened. Um, you know, it's one of these things where, frankly, you, you go through the exercise and you don't even know that it's going to impact anybody's life. Um, you assume that it will, but a lot of the time we're talking about documents executed now that won't come into play for five or ten years. With that being said, if even one has an impact to cut down on the trauma that has um, happened with lots of families that I've seen, it's almost worth it just for those, those one or two mm -hmm. uh, situations. But no, we've got a long, long way to go. The, the, um, this is very difficult stuff to track the numbers, but um, I've never seen anything much higher than about a quarter of the adult population has an advanced care plan of any sort. So um, notwithstanding the work we're doing with National Healthcare Decisions Day, we've got a long, long way to go. Do you have any advice for families on how to have the conversation? Yes. The simplest bit of advice that I would say is don't overthink it. I think we make such a big deal about advanced care planning. One of the reasons for that, I, I fault my own profession. It starts just with a basic conversation. It starts about um, how do you love your loved ones? What does it mean to have a good death if, if you could choreograph it? Who are the right people to make decisions for you if you can't speak for yourself? These aren't super, super complicated uh, choices in many regards. They don't need to be detailed medical things like, well, if I get cancer, I want you to do this. And if I have heart disease, I want that. Um, it's just much more basic. It's much more humane. Um, and it's something that we all should, should be doing, but we just, we tend to put it off. It's never the right time. Uh, we don't want to make people uncomfortable. We sort of have an American aversion to talking about death and disability. So we need to just get over that. And that's, it's frankly one of the reasons that the day exists. It's really, it's an objective day that just triggers people to, to act. Um, not much different than, you know, breast cancer awareness or go, go red for heart disease. There's nothing magical about the, the timing of those initiatives. They just serve as a, as a catalyst for people to do something that might not otherwise do. Well, it's a really good thing that you've started. Nathan, thanks so much for being our guest today. Thanks for having me. Nathan Kotkamp is the founder of National Healthcare Decisions Day, coming up on April 16th. If you want to do more reading about advanced directives or the 21st Century Cures Act, visit our website 
at hearmenowpodcast.org. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Follow us on Twitter, where we're human underscore caring. It's a good way to stay connected to the podcast and hear about upcoming programs. Our interviews are edited by Mike Addis and Allison Jakes and produced by Melody Fawcett and Scott Acord. The executive producer is Mike Drummond. We have research help from Heather Martin, Seema Bakta, Sarah Viscuso, Catherine Gibbs, and Amanda Schwartz. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. I'm Sean Collins, reminding you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and help us spread the word. We're grateful. Thanks for listening. Be well. 